I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Preisman, and I am so delighted today to welcome my friend Eden Lepucky. Eden is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels California and Woman Number 17, as well as the editor of Mothers Before, Stories and Portraits of Our Mothers as We Never Saw Them. Her nonfiction has been published in the New York Times Magazine, the LA Times, Esquire, and The Cut. She lives in LA with her family, and her latest novel is called... Time's Mouth, and it's an intergenerational epic involving time travel. Welcome, Eden. Hi, Maris. Thank you for having me. It's oh. such an honor to be on your podcast. Oh, it's an honor to talk to you about this book. Um, there's so much going on. It's so big. <laughs> and it's also like, I, I, I purposely started by saying this isn't an intergenerational epic involving time travel because... I feel like when people ask me for book recommendations, um, that is something that comes up. I mean, not those exact. They, words, they say, but... "Do you have an internet intergenerational saga about book uh, about time travel to recommend me?" Yes, yeah, and so now I have one. So I guess first, Eden, my favorite thing to talk about with time travel is um, the rules of it, and I'm wondering if you could talk about your rules as an author for how time travel works in your novel and how that works from a craft purpose. And then we'll talk about your character's rules for how to time travel. Okay. So this is a great question. I have not been asked this one yet, so I like Ooh. it. Yes. Um, you get in the scoop. Um, so in my novel, characters can time travel back to moments of their own life. And it's not so it's not a back to the future scenario where somebody's going back in time before they were born to see their parents and all that kind of stuff. Um, they also are not um, walking through 
through the pastime and people are like, hey, what's up? How you doing, man? Yes. <laughs> um, they are sort of like a ghost on the edge of these memories, but they're not memories. They're actually happening. And the person who can time travel can both be on the edge witnessing it, but also can feel whatever it was that they were feeling in the moment. And they can kind of know what they're about to do come as it happens. Um, and so it's much more, so another character in the book calls it emotional time travel, yeah. which is pretty much what it is. It's just how it would feel to be in the past because we all want to go back. I mean, I want to go back in time. And what I really long for is the feeling that the feelings I felt in that time and place that I can't get back. Absolutely. And, and even like one of the big questions uh, that this novel brings up is like, if you could choose, because the time travels, travelers can basically choose which moment to go back to. Do you have a list? <laughs> yes. I mean, of course. I mean, a lot of them are from college. I would just love mm -hmm. to go back to college. I don't know why. I think because it was such a formative experience in my life. I made some like my best friends there. I lost my virginity in college. Yeah. I learned how to read in college. I learned how to write in college. So there's all these things that I would just love to be in those transformative moments again. Um, and with my kids, I would love to hold them again when they were just brand new born stage is so fast and then it's over um that i've been following on instagram um, yes from day one <laughs> from day one um and then the the other the other part of this question is something i really enjoyed that both ursa and opal are the two characters who are doing the time traveling in this novel they both create rituals around um how they travel through time. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. It, both characters, so both characters, it happens the first time when they're teenagers and it happens accidentally. They're like, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> um, and then they don't really feel good afterward. They throw up or they feel queasy, they feel hot because it takes a kind of physical toll on people who enter the membrane. And so they create these rules as kind of like a way to keep themselves safe, I guess. One, so that they don't do it too often because it can deplete yourself so badly. Um, and so Ursa, who learns in like the 50s that she can do it, you know, she does it once a month. Kind of it, it, star it starts out as like she can only do it once a month because she's working so much. And then later she kind of creates these rules where only when the moon is full and like they call it the open moon. Um, and she gets these acolytes that they call the mamas, all these women, and they do it in this special room off like an addition on this old Victorian mansion in the woods of the Santa Cruz County, in Santa Cruz County. It's like called the Eastern Wing. And it's like an ugly honeycomb shaped building that somebody's rich husband had created for yoga. And this is when yeah. people did yoga in the 50s. So you really had to be either in India or like really out there to be doing yoga then. Um, so they lock themselves up in this room. Um, and over time there's more kind of theater around it. And she uses mm -hmm. it as kind of a, a controlling device to get these women involved because when you are, I don't know if you know this Maris, but if you are in contact with someone who is time traveling, you feel really good. There's like a, an off gassing that happens, a positive off gassing. I love that. I was trying to think if there are any other examples of that in in literature or otherwise and uh it feels new to me thank you you know it's funny it it wasn't 
with all kinds of like world building in a speculative or fantasy element sort of. I mean, I feel this book is very realistic because I don't read like a lot of fantasy. I like things to be very grounded in reality. But when I am working on something that's not totally real, um, you kind of are laying the tracks of the train for the train as the train is coming down the track or whatever the phrase is. And so there were definitely a lot of like, oh, shit, the train's coming. What should I do? And so that element where it was having this outside effect was definitely in revision came more because mm. it. I needed a reason for the women to want to hang out with Ursa. Like, why does why do they be her, you know? Why do they want to do her bidding? And it's because it feels so good to be around her. And so they need it like a drug. And also, I just wanted to feel like this real world consequence of something that seems really nutty. Absolutely. It's pretty fun to write it, I will admit. I mean, it it, it seemed so. And, and Ursa seems like a really fun character to write in terms of like when we first start reading the book, she's our heroine. Um, she has this weird time travel thing. She goes to California to start over and we are rooting for her. And you then know, I just, re- I just read a Goodreads review. Not that I'm reading my own Goodreads reviews, uh, don't, but that don't was like, it. that was like, at first I hated this book because I hated this selfish woman at the beginning, which is like all, everything I write, someone's always like, this is a selfish woman. <laughs> she does become a villain. You're right. But I, my goal was at the beginning that you were like, if you didn't like her, I don't really care if you like her, that you were interested in her and you were like, where is she going to go next? And I want her to get better at time travel and I want her to be more powerful. But then things turn, I hope. And then, and they turn pretty quickly. And it, it's, it's, you know, the book is 400 pages and you know, you're still in the double digits. When when we start to see her in ways that I, I feel like surprised me um, because I was used to having a female heroine guide me through, <laughs> you know? Um, and instead she's like, I don't care about your feelings and I don't care what the children are doing. And I just don't, I, I don't care. I have other stuff going on. Yeah, I, I pulled one over you, over on you. Um you know, I she originally wasn't the beginning of the book. She came later, but mm. starting the book with her, first of all, was so eye-opening to me because before that she had always just been my villain, but I didn't really know her. So it was really um it was fun to write and be in San Francisco in the 50s and do the the start of a commune. Like that's just an interesting fictional problem to solve of like, okay, Absolutely. you have to start a commune. How did this begin? Mm-hmm. Um but by doing that, I learned about her and I I really love her. I mean, I hate the things she does in the book and I see her as a damaged figure who cannot change even though she's faced with these truths of her behavior. But I care about her deeply because, you know, I saw the things that happened to her and I saw, like, imagine being someone who was abused as a child who then ran away to California, didn't know anyone and had a time traveling gift. I mean, who knows what you would do? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So even though she really frustrates me and I find her reprehensible, I also learned to really love her from that beginning. For sure. And and, and I'm sure this is a question you get every time you write a book, Eden, but um, we will have to talk about the setting. I, <laughs> I feel like California is a place where it's meant for new beginnings. Um, and I hadn't considered that. Um, Sometimes I think I, I feel like the North and South are so different 
but there is that same kind of seeking energy in, in both places. It's the one thing that unites the North and the South is like <laughs> spiritual seeking and like alternative modalities of healing. It's all over up and down the state. Um, you know, my parents are bl- from small blue collar towns in New Jersey and they came to California in 1980 when my mom was pregnant with me. We are, they already had two kids together. Um, but they kind of, I think remade themselves. I mean, they're authentic selves and they go by their same names, but you know, my dad works in Hollywood and he's like, Mr. Like cool. And my mom is now living in the Hollywood Hills and she's Jewish and she's just a different, like she's the same and different. And I think LA was very freeing for them. They were not from a small town anymore. They didn't have any like East coast traditions. They just were in this new place where anything could happen. And I do think we get high on our own supply here in California and we think that that's possible. And it is a dangerous mythology. It is a myth. Um, and obviously California is land that was taken from other people. And we we're like, we're going to remake this into our own image and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So there are these problems and darker edge to it. But I I see it all the time. People who are new to LA, I still, I used to teach classes in my living room and all the time I would get people that were from somewhere else who were coming to LA and they were writing. And that was like their thing that they were going to embark on. And they felt this sense of possibility. Um, I mean, I'm from LA, so I don't think I can like remake myself. Right. Alas. But I do think I sometimes feel like maybe it's because of my parents coming here. Um, but I have, I'm very, I don't have a lot of boundaries and I feel kind of free <laughs> to be myself. And I think sometimes that's like a kind of California, like, hey man, whatever you're doing is cool <laughs> kind of philosophy. I love that. I've seen it. Um... <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> Um, I do think from, I I think we get to see you experience what it could feel like to, to be new, particularly when in, in kind of the second part of the book, Ursa's son Ray runs off with another kid from the commune and Cherry has been at this commune her whole life. She's never been anywhere else. She doesn't know how to read or write really. Um, she's seen none of the world and then you just throw her into LA. Tell me about that. We, um, (laughs) yeah. So Ray, he got to go to college because his mother thought that Ray was kind of, even though he's a man and there's no men allowed on the commune, he's allowed to go to school. And I think she thinks that he's going to inherit the mansion. And despite her sort of like freewheeling, intense commune ideas she's kind of a conservative at heart like she wants her son to have these regular things so he's more prepared for the world and cherry is like an alien um being like what is this new planet called los angeles and some of the things are similar they have some of the similar trees the the you know the air is not that different um but it i had to write her kind of there's two things that she two new things that she's grappling with and that is mm. one being this big city on her own without you know in the middle of the woods like she had never really even left santa cruz um and also now she's a mother and before that she took care of a lot of the kids the mamas while they were doing their secret thing in the eastern wing that cherry and ray don't even know what it is she was kind of taking care of all the kids and was like a maid and now she has her own child and that is something that she has to grapple with. So while I was writing her, I was thinking a lot about like 
the immigrant story turned up to like a thousand. We've just like, sometimes I imagine like, what if something happened and my family had to move to China suddenly? And I would be this like immigrant parent trying to struggle with all the new things and wanting stuff from home. Um, so I tried to m- think about that perspective and also the kind of postpartum derangement that happens even if you're not running away from a cold <laughs> and even if you had a mother who raised you well. Um, so I tried to kind of fuse those and really magnify them. Magnify I, them. I That really struck me that you never mentioned the word PTSD in, in the novel. Um, it's, it's very apparent, but um, yeah, that's, that wasn't the time. It wasn't the time. And like, I think nowadays, one of my least favorite things is when you're in like a writing class and someone is like, or even when I teach writing, I teach at Caltech and a student will say like, I solved this story. It's like a published story. And they'll be like, she has multi-personality disorder or this person is manic. And it's not that that's wrong, but I'm like, sometimes that shuts us down a little bit in the conversation of who the character is. So yes, you're right. Cherry does have PTSD from being (laughs) raised or not being raised properly. And like, what do you do with trauma? And imagine having that without even the language for it. I mean, I feel like nowadays we throw around that language and that can, you know, give us narrative to keep going. But like, if you don't even know that that word exists, I don't even know. You think the problem is with you versus what happened to you. And then, of course, anytime you talk about time travel, you have to be thinking about how we process memories, how we process trauma. I think you're probably right. It's so interesting. I I am a I try to be as stupid as possible when I'm writing, and that that is to say, I don't um, think too hard about what I'm writing about. I just mm-hmm. write about the people and put the things in the book, the texture of the world. And then I'm like, give it to someone else. I'm like, what is this? And it's not until it's pretty late in the process that I try to articulate all of those, what I call in teaching the deeper subjects, mm-hmm. because I don't want it to feel heavy handed. I don't want it to feel didactic. But late in the process, my editor is like, oh, you wrote a book about um, generational trauma. And I was like, oh my God, I did. I was like, I would she never did. read that book. Um, <laughs> but obviously, I mean, it's so obvious. You don't, You don't have to be a reader for a long time to be able to pick up on that theme in the novel. But once I had like picked up on that or it was told to me, I mean, I knew that I just didn't want to say it out loud. Uh, That was useful in me in like a final, like really getting further with the draft of like, okay, time travel is cool. Like, okay, that's neat. But why, why does it Mm -hmm. exist for these characters? What is it doing? How does memory serve us? How does memory kind of hold us back? How can memories be so loaded that you refuse to let them in? And how would that fester? And I started thinking a lot about just that quality of when we go back to the past in order to like build us up. And when do we just are like, I can't look at that. There are certain memories I have that I'm like, nope, we'll not yeah. think about that because that why box. am I going to go into that that little open that box as you say? Um, and 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 Ray is is such a good embodiment of, of that kind of thinking until he discovers uh, later on in the book, um, Reiki and therapy. Mm. Eden, Maris. tell me about this. He doesn't have time travel, but he knows that trauma can be stored in the body. Yeah. So he, you know, despite his best efforts to move to LA and be like this cool, um, 
salesman and then he becomes a location manager. Um, he still has issues and just through a random course of events, somebody at LA that he needs to connect with for career tells him about this therapist, this kind of therapy by Wilhelm Reich. Fun fact, my dad, a lot of this, my dad was a microfiche salesman. He's a location manager. He is into Reikian therapy. So I grew up with these ideas and I always wanted to write about them because they're so interesting. Wilhelm Reich, he worked with Freud for a long time and then they went their separate ways. Um, as far as I understand it, I did some research, but I feel nervous about being quizzed about it. Um, <laughs> but you know, Freud was very much like, you're like this because your mother and father are like this. And Reich was, he didn't disagree with that, but he thought you have to look at it in a larger context. So he was kind of revolutionary thinking about like intersectionality, essentially like how you behave is also related to your socioeconomic status and your gender and all these other larger oppressions. Um, and he was kind of, I, maybe he's not the first, but I feel like he's he had groundbreaking work in what we now know as somatic therapy, which is pretty normal now. Like when people are like, you're okay, just breathe. Like mm -hmm. that was, people didn't a long time ago, but the idea that the breath would bring you back to the body, which would make you feel better is an idea that he pioneered. And I mean, he got really wild in his therapy. If you go to a Riken therapist, you will do stuff like scream into a pillow. You will sit in a room and look around it with your eyes in every single corner of the room until your eyes are like feeling like you're going to bulge out of your head. He created this thing called the orgone accumulator, which is a box made of alternating layers. I think of fiberglass, wool, steel wool, and something else. And it's like a little elevator sized or smaller, like a phone booth. You sit in there and you're supposed to help, supposed to help you feel these, what Wright called bions, um, proliferate and that's like the energy life force i mean he the problem with him is that he just got nuttier and nuttier he ended his life in prison the fbi raided his files he believed he could bring rain with a cloud busting machine so it's <laughs> tragic because some of his ideas are great and some of them are just like oh my god you're so crazy um so i grew up with my dad going to a Riken therapist um so i grew up with someone who would if i was like upset my dad would like push my sternum with his fingers and be like, get it out, get it out. Like very, <laughs> it's weird, but also I feel really comfortable in my body. So there's something mm. to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I had always wanted to write about that. And so Ray, I had already given Ray my dad's biography. So I just pushed it further and thought, what would you do with someone who had repressed all of their childhood trauma? And it was kind of living a lie. Like nobody knows about where he comes from. His daughter doesn't know where he comes from. And then he started to do this kind of therapy and what what would come out. And, you know, Reichen therapy is not memory work at all. I I just made a memory work because mm -hmm. I wanted to. Um, but I did have a good time writing his Reichen therapist. I describing, <laughs> I think like one of the best experiences of the book is getting to describe being tickled because I was like, it's so, my, my oldest son loves to be tickled. He requests tickling. He has like some sensory input that he needs. And I think tickling is like so torturous. So, but it was, it's fun to write about tickling. It's an incredibly memorable scene. Let's put it like that. <laughs> oh, good. And, and so Ray's daughter, Opal, eventually um, tries out the accumulator for herself. Oh, so, you know, he, he, Ray got one of those. 
He oh, builds his own things. accumulator. Yes. Um, like it, you say, even in the book, like it's kind of like from Ikea. <laughs> Like yeah, it's kind of, well, together. I had to make it up because I couldn't get access to one and you can order them from Maine. I was like, these have to be shitty, right? Like I had to make it so that he could build it himself. That's the fun of being a fiction writer. I'm like, I don't know for sure. And maybe this book will take off in the Reikian community and they'll be really mad and be like, actually, they're really beautifully built. But this one <laughs> that he has is not well. It's like, I imagine like particle board situation where you're trying to balance them, you know? And, and I, I guess not to spoil anything like, uh, his daughter Opal also has a lot of organic energy going around in this in this uh, phone booth thing. Yeah, she she realizes that she can time travel. She that happens before she she realizes it in a bathroom stall at her high right. school. But she goes she re- initially goes to the accumulator to try to like make it go away. She wants it to heal her because she's like, what is this? Um, but in fact. The accumulator only makes her stronger. Um, so yeah, I I fused Reichen therapy and time travel forever in fiction. Um, yeah, I and put her in there and see what happened. We didn't even talk about the, another aspect of that, which is that a lot of this this is all taking place on one of the most outlandish, cool places in LA. Yes, a real place. I heard about this mansion that is, if you are go to LA or you live in LA, if you're driving down La Cienega on the way to the airport um, or you're at Kenneth Hahn, which is a big park, you can see there's all these um, pump jack oil rigs going up and down in the fields. And there is a house there, an old looking like brick house. And it's kind of hard to see. You can see it occasionally. I heard about it on NPR. I did some research. It is actually a now it's an original house and then the oil was discovered around it and it is now a location, a film location. Um, And when I heard about this in 2015, I thought, oh, my God, I have to write about this. Um, And it turned out my dad had actually gone to he hadn't worked. I don't think he ever filmed there, but he had gone to see the house a couple of times to see if it would work for locations. So I was already kind of thinking about writing about a person in LA who worked locations. And then I was like this, it was like, you know, I'm not a spiritual person, but sometimes books have this mystical quality where the web grows and things kind of get caught in it. And I was like, I have to write this. Of course, I'm going to put my characters, they're going to become the caretakers of this crazy estate. Um, And I didn't intend for it to have an echo with the estate that Ray grows up on, but it has a similar quality where they're isolated in this old house um, and magical things tend to happen in old houses. Absolutely. And, and there's also, I mean, in a more solid way, we can acknowledge that it's a, a dangerous place in that they're not supposed to stay more than a couple of years. Yeah, because I uh, I don't know if you've heard, but oil is bad. And so it <laughs> could be really bad for you um, to live on an estate like that. But it's one of those things where he sees the estate and he kind of falls in love with it. It would be free for them to live there. And he gets once he gets there, he's like the bions, the Reikian energy is so strong there. And then it turns out that his daughter really likes it and they get into a groove there, even though in the end, they'll have to leave it because it's going to, you know, give them cancer or something and the idea of the oil perhaps giving them cancer it feels very similar to the idea of like keeping secrets for bottled up for yes deep in the ground it's the it's it's a ripe for an english essay i really think so i hope some teachers assign it (laughs) amazing 
Eden, tell me about your choice of narrator. Oh, the narrator. You know, when you're starting a book, you're like, I'm going to write a time travel saga narrated by time itself. That should be easy. It's not easy and nobody should ever do it. I <sighs> want it. I've always wanted to write an omniscient narrator. Like, I love omniscient narrators. I love The Known World by Edward P. Jones. I love Middlemarch, uh, older novels where that's sort of the normal way that a book is told. I just love the idea of a a, bo- a narrator without a body, but who has personality. I think it's really fun, but it's very hard to write. It's, I don't know if it's just our era or I'm just not good enough to do it. It took so many tries. Um, so the narrator starts the book. There's two pages that start with you wonder about me and it's describing that feeling of like time passing and you can't get it back and time's mouth her pronouns are she her but she really goes by any pronoun really um she isn't time but she gathers it and don't ask me. i don't know where it came from i just did it one day i was like this is fun this is what i'm writing um and because it's a more elevated narrator, I I felt like I had more freedom. I could go into these different characters. They each get sections. And occasionally you'll hear her like authoritative confidence, but it used to be much stronger, but everyone except me thought it was annoying. And everyone would be like, I'm reading this book and this annoying bitch is interrupting my story. So a lot of it was cutting her out more she does have a play in the, she does do a plot she does something in the story later on but she's pretty unobtrusive now and I just kind of like her as like a global intelligence of the book um but yeah she's kind of sassy there were a lot of like super sassy lines that I liked but like I guess she was really the truly unlikable character of the book I hope you're gonna do like a dvd extras thing a- outtakes you... of her like bitchy outtakes. asides <laughs> yes, I would love that. Time time is a bitch. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> on that note. Eden, before I let you go, will you please recommend some books for us? I would love to recommend some books. Let's see. Um, last night I saw um, Lydia Kiesling read from Mobility. She's a friend. However, even if she wasn't my friend, I would love this book. And we were talking about oil. So it's about one character follows her life. And the ending is so devastating. I It still haunts me. Um, I think it's great. It's sort of like, I think it's like a Jonathan Franzen book if it were written by a woman about a girl from teenagehood and uh, like better than purity. Um, that's one recommendation. I'm really into Larry McMurtry these last couple of years. Um, I read Lonesome Dove in 2021. And I just, I mean, who knew a Pulitzer Prize winning bestselling mega hit would be so good. It's wonderful. But now my husband and I are kind of on this like Larry McMurtry project. He has so many books and I love the idea of reading them over the course of my life. So I'm currently reading an 1,000 page book about like 1960s Houston called Moving On, which I would not start with that book. It's not, it's like lesser McMurtry, but still good. But his book, Leaving Cheyenne is like, uh, it's part of a trilogy, but it's not related to the other two. It's like his second novel ever. It's about a rancher, a cowboy, and the woman they both love. And it is like just beautiful, repressed cowboys. I mean, he did love the adaptation them. for Brokeback Mountain and you can see why. It is just a perfect, perfect, like I cried reading it. Beautiful book. So I recommend that too. I love that. Eden, thank you so much. Time's Mouth is out now. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.